what up? Welcome in. I'm Doug Gottlieb. This is All Ball. Uh, I got a lot to get to. Ian O'Connor is my guest in this All Ball, and we'll talk about his new book, about the life and times of Mike Krzyzewski. Speaking of Duke, I just got a chance uh I, I just got a chance to visit Cameron Indoor Stadium for the first time ever. And now, look, full disclosure, it was Florida State. Florida State is one of these teams that I've never seen a team more devastated by injuries. They didn't have all five starters because none of them had had COVID. All five starters out with, with injuries. And this is a team that before the injury set in was leading the ACC and, and beat Duke at home. Does that mean they're the best team in the ACC? I don't believe so. I mean, they would have beaten Duke again. I'm not sure, but it's really hard to tell how you evaluate them for the postseason based upon their health. What I could evaluate is Cameron Indoor Stadium, which I loved. I loved. And I walked into the building and I immediately thought about the old Gallagher Ibe Arena immediately because it's a slightly bigger version um, with obviously more successful teams. It's not as old, I don't believe. Um, I don't think it's as intimidating as the old Gallagher Iba, but I would also point out it wasn't on a North Carolina game. You know, it, it wasn't one of those games where it's so hot that everybody's sweating and, and dripping sweat and you can't hear yourself think. The, the difference is twofold with the old guy. Now, look, it may actually not. It probably doesn't matter now because the old Gallagher is no more. The new Gallagher, uh, I believe, is still more intimidating, is louder, uh, and and is more kind of awe-inspiring when you walk when you're standing on center court. But because it's just not full, it's hard to ever make the case that it's better. But the difference in the old Gallagher-Iba and Cameron Indoor Stadium, I think Cameron, they've obviously kept it up and redone it, and it's real. the seats are all beautiful and nice. The ceiling hung... Uh, the ceiling hung backboards are cool. Like, who has that anymore? Duke does. I think Colorado still does. Those are like the only two Power 5 schools that, that have that center hung. I mean, the, the ceiling hung backboards. Uh, the, the stands are a little far off the court in the baseline. Um, it still it gives them, obviously, front row seating, and it makes them likely compliant. Whereas Oklahoma State, it's... You know, because it's such an old building, they've been able to get away with. And when they redid the building, they were able to make it compliant on different in different ways. Um, but I, I, I feel like that second level of Oklahoma State is at a steeper pitch and the baseline seating is much closer to the court. And then the old Gallagher had a flat roof, which made it much louder. On the other hand. It is interesting that we went through this this pattern of time where everybody was trying to get bigger and better and NBA style arenas. Obviously, the Breslin Center started that and the Breslin Center is a great environment. Um, But you look at Ohio State, you look at Wisconsin, the places they used to occupy and where they are now. You look at Oregon. Obviously, they had to move from Matt Court because it was basically a tinderbox, but an amazing place. Whereas Duke. And some of this is that it's made out of stone on the exterior has been able to keep it in its uh, relative same form. And it's really cool. So here's what I'm going to do before I get to Ian O'Connor. Okay. Of the places that I've called games from, I'm going to give you the five best play coolest looking best places that are old and the five coolest places by my estimation that are new. The, the, the five places that I've been to 
that I think you need to go to, right? That are the the old places. I mean, you have to go to Butler. You have to go to Hinklefield House, not just because of Hoosiers, uh, but because of what what an amazing, what an, a beautiful building that is. It's a really cool building. Um, I never felt like it was intimidating. I do like the fact that they have those stands behind the hoop that are elevated, right? That second level right behind the hoop. Uh, obviously, at midcourt, you can go all the way back. But on a Saturday afternoon when the sun is go- climbing, going through the windows at Hinkle, th- that's a special place. Hinkle, to me, is probably the most aesthetically pleasing of the old cathedrals of the sport. Uh, Kansas is a place you have to go to. It's not just, was it Naismith Boulevard, Naismith Drive, but they actually had the rules of the game and the environment is incredible and it's an old field house. Now, uh, that place, again, they have the same problem as Duke behind the basket. You know, the students don't come close to the court because that's the only where, place that they can have wheelchair access. But otherwise, that place is perfection. And, and And what they've done to redo it, you know, is really smart. They, in an effort to not have to, put anything up to code they basically done everything around it to make it better right the basketball facility right next door the locker room all that stuff is really nice the the field house itself is as it used to be or as close as it used to be and it's spectacular and the fact that i saw kentucky put them down 20 at the half in what was an incredible environment this year even more i've seen san Diego state beat them I, I, I the only place thing i haven't done is we didn't beat them but 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 Kansas is really special. So Butler, Kansas, obviously Duke. Um, the Palestra would be a place that they redid it. I don't know. This has got to be going back 15 years ago. And I thought they did a really. It also has those same kind of exposed girders, if you will, or arches that, that feels like a 1920s building. Um, so then you have your basic four. And you're looking for another one, right? And in terms of historic old arena, I I, I would still put Gallagher Iba on that list. You know, I put Gallagher Iba on, on that list because, you know, you look around the Big Ten and very few play in their older places. Illinois does, but it's been redone. I actually like the Illinois redo. Everybody else seems to. Uh, there's the barn in Minnesota. Those would be the next two. So I'll give you five or six. I put the barn in Minnesota as part of that. Um, it's such a big building, and you don't realize that there's another arena. Like there's a wall, and then there's another arena on the other side. So those would be the six. I, I said five. Those are the six that I think you have to go to. That they're all historically significant, and the only one that's been redone to where it's a modernized building on the interior, not just exterior, be Oklahoma State. So it would probably cut it off the list. It gets in under the wire because the lower level is essentially the same layout as it's always been, and it's the same white maple floor they've always had. Okay, so let's get to more modern buildings, new arenas. Some of these new arenas are actually quite nice, right? Like, um, and I guess Texas Tech is now over, it's like 20 years old or over 20 years old, right? So that one's a, that's a hard one. Right. But and Texas Tech, it's always been a beautiful arena. But now that the fans are there and the students are crazy, it becomes one. I I would say this. um, I didn't include Washington, heck ed or whatever it's called now in terms of the sponsorship. That should be in the discussion um, because I I like that better than uh, uh, the amount of seats that they added to Gallagher Ibe Arena. Um, Some great arenas that have been redone, like if I was going to go five other places that have been redone. I would I would put New Mexico in the pit, and it's not just because the pit. 
the way in which they redid it and they took out seats was amazing. It's really, and it's still just as intimidating. They're going to be better. That's one that you're going to want on your bucket list. Matter of fact, uh, Wyoming's arena uh, is really cool since they redid it. You know, they're t- those old roundhouses they're taking in and making the seats better. They did it at, at, at Illinois as well. They did a great job there. Um, but here's my five redone buildings that are like brand new buildings that kind of redone on the inside. Uh, the, the pit at New Mexico. Um, I love Northwestern and what they did to Welsh Ryan. That, that place is so cool. 7,000 seats. And they put in this this excellent club level section. Like, I think that one is very, very cool. Very well done. Um, and then I, I look around the country. I'm like, OK, so I would have to find three more. Uh, Arizona was is not been crazy redone. Um, they, they, they put in new chairs. I don't know how long ago it is. I'm, I'm starting to remember years. Um, I, I it's it's. It's not that unique a building, but it's an awesome building with great sight lines and a great crowd and a great atmosphere. I do New Mexico. I would say uh, Arizona, Northwestern. Um, I really like what Florida did to redo their building. I know that Ole Miss, they have a new building. That's what this list is for. More redone buildings. So I'll, I'll put Florida on that list as well of redone buildings. Um, and then I... I told you, I like what Illinois has done. Um, it's it's interesting because it still looks the same on the outside. And there's still parts of it in the upper bowl, which are exactly the same. But everything else has changed and different. And I would put Illinois on that list. All right. Without further ado, no more arena talk for now. Uh, I will give you a sense of what it's like to walk into the doors at Cameron Indoor at the end. But let's get to Ian O'Connor, who's authored a new biography on Mike Krzyzewski. When did the book first come like when did when did this the idea of it when did the book first come to be you know it was really after uh my previous biography was belichick did well and i actually wasn't doug planning on doing another iconic coach for my next project but i I, i've always been fascinated by shashevsky i was there for his greatest moment in the spectrum in philly when leitner made the shot against kentucky and Covered that team, that Hurley Hill Leitner team a little bit. And my my literary agent and publisher actually uh, were more uh, enchanted by the idea at the start. And I really was looking maybe to do something else again, other than another coach biography. But uh, they came to me with with the thought. And over a few weeks, I, I embraced it because even though I was I was looking to do something else. I think he is a fascinating figure. I don't think there's ever been a definitive biography on him. So I, I, I took on the challenge and really kind of used the same approach I did with Belichick. The difference was Belichick actively tried to block people from talking to me and Krzyzewski did not do that. So I guess the challenge was a little bit less daunting, but it was a challenge nonetheless. Um, what, what was Mike Krzyzewski like? when he first got to Duke, because I think this is, and this is where the, the Belichick, like where the Belichick disciples have gone wrong is that they, they walk into buildings and they act as Bill acts now, or had they seen him as he carries himself, but guys are very different when they, they first get a job, when they first get, when Mike Krzyzewski first got to Duke, because again, people, I don't think they totally understand how different things were, how, how challenging a job that was. 
and what he was like. What, what was he like when he first got the job? Well, first off, Doug, he gets there. He's a nine and 17 army coach. I, I don't to this day understand how the Duke AD Tom Butters hired him. Frankly, nobody knew him. Nobody could pronounce his name. Nobody could spell his name. And he was nine and 17 at army. Bob Knight helped him get that job. He had sure. a lot of, he had a lot of nights still in him. He was a really, really intense coach at army. And so some of the holdover players from the Bill Foster team that went to the national championship game a couple of years earlier, they were, they were concerned about Krzyzewski. They thought he was going to be just a Bobby Knight knockoff. And coach K tried to assure them that he wasn't Bobby Knight, that he was his own man. And so, but no, I, I do think other than he wouldn't cross the line and certainly be physical with a player, uh, he, he was a guy who could degrade you, break you down verbally. And so, so that's, that's, he was a very defensive centric coach. I think that helped him get the job and sort of overcome the, the flaws uh, that, that he brought, or at least the fact that people just didn't know who he was. And I don't think the field, the candidates that Duke interviewed that year were terribly impressive. So I think that helped him, but he was a guy, very ambitious, I would say nightlike to, to a certain extent and probably very surprised that he got that job, frankly. And he, well, well part of, part of it is, and I, again, like we have to remember when you go back to when Mike Krzyzewski got the job, there were, it was no bigger figure in college basketball than Bob Knight. Correct. Right? There wasn't, it wasn't, now there's these basketball families and basketball family trees, you know, and you got the Patino family tree. Right. And then you got um, like you got uh, Mike Krzyzewski's family tree and you had, you know, the North Carolina and the Dean Smith family tree, et cetera. When he got the job, there was one and it wasn't just because of his persona. Like my dad was a was a college coach then. But even when he was a, when he was a high school coach, everyone would go to his clinics. He, he his his coaching was considered the best in, in basketball. And so if he picks up the phone, he calls, he got a pretty good shot. Um, how there, there's these famous stories about how he was close to losing his gig, close to not getting a second contract. What's the reality? To no, that, that is the reality, Doug. I mean, he loses to Wagner at home and that was a bad Wagner team in the, I believe it was the ECAC Metro, a team that's losing to St. Francis of New York and LIU and, they go into Durham and win that game. And I think that probably was the, the low point. And fans, boosters, alums, students, faculty, they were all calling for his head. <laughs> and so there was, a, there was a scene, too. I have this in the book. Year two, he loses at Princeton pretty badly. And already then he starts being concerned that he's losing his hold on, on what was a dream job. Uh, his assistant coaches were looking for him after the game at Princeton, couldn't find him. And, and one of them, Bobby Dwyer, opened a sort of a door to a side room. And there was Krzyzewski sitting alone crying. And I, I found that to be a pretty profound scene. Uh, so he was very concerned he was going to get fired. Butters was concerned he didn't want to fire him after year three. But he was thinking about it. He actually had a conversation with Bob Knight about what do I do here? I'm, I'm in a tough spot. And Knight actually told him, extend him. 
and and later on, he did extend him. And Krzyzewski, I think, was more surprised than anybody on campus that he got that extension. But Butters doubled down on what a lot of people thought was a terrible hire and invested another five years in Krzyzewski. And it turned out to be one of the greatest decisions in the history of major college athletics. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com. And within the iHeartRadio app, search FSR to listen live. How, how, how did this thing, how, how, you know, there's, there's a player, there's a game, there's a, obviously a team. How did it turn around? Well, it was the recruiting class, Allery, Billis, Henderson, and a couple of other guys. But it was, it was Johnny Dawkins. I mean, he's the player that changed everything. So he needed that recruiting class. He struck out on Chris Mullen. That broke his heart. He was right there to get Mullen out of Brooklyn and lost him to St. John's. Probably, if you ask Krzyzewski today, your biggest heartbreak in recruiting, he would go back to Chris Mullen. So he bounces back the next year, and he really struck out in that entire recruiting period. But the following year, he gets this great class, the number one class in the country. But really, it was Dawkins, the, the special player he needed to compete against special players in the ACC, particularly around the bend at North Carolina. So that's what changed it. It was just getting talent. He didn't have talent before that. He had some in year one, but they were Bill Foster holdovers, Gene Banks, Kenny Denard. That team was pretty good. An NIT team, I think, went 17 and 13. But then those next two years were bleak. And so he's on the brink. And that class, like in the ESPN documentary, did save him. And Johnny Dawkins in particular saved him. And they just started winning some games on talent. And so he goes from there, but there, there were some, some turning points and listen, he, Dean Smith was, was everything back then. And, and Mike challenged him. In fact, the first time they ever coached against each other, they're at the end of the game, a couple of seconds left. Carolina basically has the game one. I think they were on the free throw line, but the game was over and, and Smith went to shake Krzyzewski's hand and, and Coach K would not shake his hand. He said, Dean, the game's not over. So that was the first time he ever sort of made a stand against the great Dean Smith. And, and Smith sort of recoiled. Roy Williams was on the bench and he thought for a second, you know, don't do that to Dean Smith your first time out of the gate. But then Roy Williams said to himself, you know what? He's right. The game wasn't over. And, and this guy is, is going to be difficult to, to deal with. And that turned out to be the case over time. Um, you mentioned... I would say his, I don't know, it's, it's interesting. He mentioned his greatest moment in coaching was the spectrum. <clears throat> I would push back against that in that um, I thought it was the, the upset of UNLV was, was, was that, would be that moment. But that's all part of, of Leitner. And then slightly after Leitner, Hurley joined Leitner, obviously. Um, what, what was, what was Leitner like in terms of, the recruitment and when he first got there, because because again, like you look back now and and it's interesting. You look at the dream team photo to somebody who doesn't know, like my son's 12 years old. He didn't know anything about about basketball at that time. But he does know like Michael Jordan and Larry Bird and Charles Barkley and John Stockton. Right. And, and then who's that guy? <laughs> and so now if you and in reality, now, if you were to say, like, you put Christian Leitner on the dream team. But in over in, over Shaq, by the way, over Shaquille right. O'Neal. Yeah. In but in modern college basketball, 
you know, post, you know, post UCLA dynasty, there's no more decorated college player, no more successful college player than, than Christian Leitner. And I, I do think we, we lose that sometimes. What was that like from its infancy? Well, out of suburban Buffalo, he was recruited by basically everybody. There were family members who wanted him to go to Notre Dame. And he visited, had a good visit. Uh, North Carolina was right there. If I'm not mistaken, I think his mother loved Dean Smith. So uh, some some hearts were broken in that in that recruitment. And but uh, after he visited Duke, that was the school for him. And right away, early on in practices, the coaches were looking at each other like, wow, like we knew he was good, but we didn't know he was this good. And he wouldn't back down from upperclassmen in in practice and scrimmages. And so he, he established himself pretty much right away. I was really at his coming out party nationally his freshman year when he outplayed Alonzo Mourning in the NCAA tournament to go to the Final Four in the Elite Eight in the Meadowlands. And that's really when the rest of the country realized, man, this kid is a freshman. He just really took it to Alonzo and outplayed him in an Elite Eight game. And so, but from that point forward, you're right. I always thought he was going to be a good NBA, a very good NBA player, frankly, and I was wrong. He was pretty good. I think he made one all-star team, but I, I don't quite understand why that didn't work out for him because uh, maybe he was a little ahead of his time as a stretch four, but he could do it all. And listen, he had so many big shots. It wasn't just the, the shot in the spectrum against Kentucky, the shot to beat UConn in the NCAA tournament, of course. And, but interesting relationship with Bobby Hurley too. He drove him crazy. Hurley one time told me in practice that Leitner was really so abusive to him in a lot of ways, trying to act like the tough big brother that Bobby really didn't need. That one time in a scrimmage, he drove the lane and he saw Leitner come over to help. And he intentionally fired the ball right in his face, actually hit the side of his head. And Leitner was dazed and, and her, once he recovered, then he chased Bobby out of the gym. I mean, Bobby just ran about a 4-2-40 to get away from him. But that relationship was interesting because they basically did not really like each other at all. And I think at one point, Bobby went to Krzyzewski and, hey, you know, what are you going to step in here? And Coach K said, you settle it yourself. You guys have to figure this out. And I think... It was interesting, uh, Coach K's strategy there to let those two guys find a way to make it work, that relationship. And the final game they ever played together, the Fab Five National Championship game in 92, at halftime after Leitner had a brutal first half, Bobby really for the first time took over the locker room at halftime and Coach K stepped back and led him and he lit Leitner up. That's really the only time Bobby ever did that with anybody, but for a change, he had the upper hand and he fixed the problem and he got Leitner going in the second half. And then they blew out the fab five for the national title. So I thought it was just very fascinating the way coach K stepped back and let those guys over three years together, really just figure it out on their own. What, what was that? Like not, not the win over UNLV the year before they were run out of the gym. Like, and there was a time there, again, this is, it's very hard for people who weren't around it and, and covering it like you were, or studying it like I was at the time as a really little kid. But people forget that up until really when they won the national championship, Duke was great up until a point. They get to the final fours, they got blown out in. 
right? Those yeah, Johnny Dawkins team with Seattle, right? Got got blown out. Was not competitive in the Final Four. And there was this. They, they can't beat the real teams with the real dudes. No, no actually, um, in '86, that team got to the final and had the lead on Louisville late. And Shashevsky took the air out of the ball and really blew that game. They should have won the national title. And actually, that was that was, uh, was, was Purvis Ellison. Yes, that was '86, Doug. And he takes the air out of the ball with it wasn't that big of a lead, five, seven points, four, five, six minutes left. And Billy Packer on the air said, "This is a mistake." And boy, was he right, because Duke would end up late in the shot clock taking bad shots and, and not scoring. And Louisville won the game. So Krzyzewski, I think, knew he cost Duke a national title that year. But, you know, they were the Buffalo Bills before the Buffalo Bills. And he was yes. Marv Levy before Marv Levy. Right. So 86, right. they lose that national title. They should have won. 88, they lose in the final four. 89, I think that was the year they got dusted by Seton Hall after having a big lead on Seton Hall at the final four and 90, they get destroyed by Vegas in the final by 30. And I remember being on the plane with Vegas and Tark flying to the final four in Indianapolis in 91, when that team was probably the greatest team I've ever seen in college basketball, undefeated, of course. And Tark, I was sitting next to him for part of that flight. And he said, I have nobody to cover Christian Leitner. I'm really, I have nobody to cover him. And I, I thought he was just being a coach, just being right. overly concerned. And he thought he knew I was going to write some of this. So as it turned out, he was right. <laughs> they had nobody to cover Christian Leitner in that game. But as you probably recall, Doug, the biggest shot in the history of Duke basketball was not made by Leitner. It was made by Hurley down five against Vegas. He steps into that three point shot, which changed everything with about what a couple minutes left. And if he misses that three, I think UNLV wins that final four game and goes back to back as national champs. And but he made it. And and really, that changed everything for Duke and Coach K. It's funny that that's that's the, that's that was the moment that that changed everything. And again, people do people, people, people forget. Um, the, the next wave. OK, so after you, you went back to back national titles. They're unable in Hurley's senior year to, to win one. Uh, but what was what was it like trying to replace those guys? That's like it was, I mean, Leitner, four final fours in four years. Um, Bobby Hurley, a coach's son, the all-time assist leader in college basketball history. And you had Grant Hill, who's arguably the most talented player um, to ever put on a Duke uniform. What, what was, how hard was it to, to not have the vacuum after those guys left. Right. Hurley's senior year, right. They lose to Jason Kidd and Cal in, in the NCAA tournament. And that ends an era to some degree because Leitner and Hurley are now both gone, but then Grant Hill takes them back to the finals in 94. They lose. And, and that's when it really, when Duke basketball descends into a very grim and dark period of time, coach K yeah. physically, emotionally, in every way, literally and figuratively breaks down. He is having a, an emotional breakdown. He drove himself to the brink of physical exhaustion. And so we're talking now, this is 95. His wife steps in Mickey and basically forces him to rearrange his priorities, makes him go to the doctor. He's got serious back issues. He had surgery and he came back too soon from the surgery, but she really stepped in and saved him from himself. He was destroying himself and, and his own career. So uh, she but, deserved- but how, but, but how, but again, to, to, 
to, to, to the common person, like you're just coaching a basketball team. Right. How, how was, what, what was it that was causing him this level of physical exhaustion? You're right. It's not digging ditches. And I think the average person, Doug, would be like, how, how tough is it to coach basketball? But he's staying up to all hours of the night. He's not sleeping, studying film, studying film. And he treated every day during the season, much like Belichick during the season and the offseason, like game seven of the World Series. And that intensity day after day after day, season after season, it broke him down. And he had serious back issues. He had surgery uh, on a disc and and he came back too quickly from that surgery. He needed to take part of that season off and he didn't or he tried not to. And by rushing back, he just made his physical condition worse. And he tried to fight through it and grind through it and said, that's what I asked my players to do. So I'm going to do the same thing. And he just got to a point where he looked about 70 years old. He was gray. His coloring was awful. He he just wasn't he couldn't get comfortable with his back issues. He wasn't eating. He just looked like death. A couple of his players told me that he looked green, gray. It is described him in, in different shades of, of just misery. And at, at one point, Mickey made a doctor's appointment and she told him, I've never given you an ultimatum in our marriage, in our life. I'm giving you one now. You'll either be at the doctors at two o'clock with me, or I'll know what you chose, basketball or me. So she goes to the doctor's office and she's concerned he's not going to be there. And then, well, I guess I have to divorce him. Thankfully, his car was there. He was there. So he ends up taking that the rest of that season off. And that team under Pete Gaudet was was awful. And so what, listen, what, what's interesting about that team is the recruiting wins on that team. Right. You had Mariki Price was from out here. He was, he was young, but he also he had Chris Collins and. Jeff Capel. And like, I don't think people understand, like Jeff Capel's dad was an incredibly well-respected coach and Chris Collins, dad was one of the great players in the history of college basketball. Right? And he, I mean, he's number one overall pick. And so to get to have those two and then not be able to coach them. And that, like you said, that team was an abject disaster. Um, it, it had to, one, I hadn't probably heard him, right. That he couldn't help. But he, he felt he had stranded his team. It, it drove him crazy. And he actually had a friend sit behind Pete Gaudet, his assistant, who had taken over the team and said, will you just watch this guy and tell me, just come back to me and tell me what you're seeing him do or not do during games. So the friend reported back to him. He's spending too much time with the referees and I think it's distracting him. And But what the players told me was he didn't have that command voice that Krzyzewski had uh, honed at West Point. And you could barely hear him in huddles above the din of the crowd. And he's sweating through his shirts and he looked like a mad professor. And he just wasn't a leader. He was just one of those guys. Never. Pete Gaudet was a brilliant assistant coach, but he was never meant to be a head coach. Just one of those guys. Great coordinator. Not a great head coach. Not even a good head coach. He was not good at Army and he was really not good at Duke. And it was a bit of a shame because it just wasn't his role. And in retrospect, they should have picked one of the other assistants. I think at the time, Bray or Amaker could have could have taken over that team and there would have been different results. So it drove Krzyzewski crazy that his team was falling apart and he could do nothing about it. And you're right. You look well any year you look at the Duke roster and they're all American high school Americans on the team. So, yes, some very good players. And there was one scene that I have in the book. Vince Carter was visiting. He was on a recruiting trip 
So he's visiting and he's at a Duke game. I want to say it was Duke Carolina. I could be wrong. It was an ACC game. So anyway, Carter is there. Chris Collins, who had been struggling with an injury, he plays a little bit in this game, this particular game, and Doug's in the stands. You know Doug's temper. And Chris, I think, took one shot, played 11 minutes, had been – I want to say it was a foot injury. I have it in the book. And he was fighting through that. And after the game, they lose, and Doug storms into the locker room. And Doug is ready to kill somebody. He thinks the coaches, Pete Gaudet, the assistants are mismanaging Chris, his son, and it just goes crazy. And Vince is sitting there. And Johnny Moore, who was an assistant SID at the time, said that a columnist who was there and witnessed this walked up to Johnny Moore, a Duke official, and says, well, I guess we're not getting Vince Carter. And uh, they did not get Vince Carter. So, (laughs) but Doug had a temper and you're right, a great player and uh, hit probably the two most pressure packed free throws in the history of this country, though people don't remember that either. And and he blew his top in that locker room and uh, Vince Carter played for North Carolina. Um, just, you know, Florida thought they were getting Florida thought they were getting Vince, too. So, OK, so then how do you get it back? He, he comes back and it didn't turn immediately um, because, the, you know, they were. They were upset by uh, by UConn, right? In well, yeah, let, let, but let's stop there, though. That was a great team. So he did build it back pretty quickly. Yes. That 99 team, you could argue, was his best team or certainly one of his best teams. Should have won the national title. They almost went 39 and 0. They were like two plays away from being 39 and 0 national champs. So but the program changed going into that season. It had changed really right after he came back. So a couple of his assistant coaches, Quinn Snyder, Tim O'Toole, they wanted to modernize the program for one with uh, use of computers and doing different things. I mean, Duke, in some respects, was a mom and pop operation. And Quinn Snyder was really big into it. And Tim O'Toole as well. Like, hey, we need to modernize our recruiting, our, our computer uh, programs and, and how we track recruits, how we communicate with them via email, just things that Coach K really wasn't doing a lot of and putting out colorful, colorful uh, recruiting pamphlets and, and things of that nature. But also, hey, let's change the way we, we recruit and let's start going after kids who come from non-traditional Duke backgrounds. Chris Carwell came from one of the toughest neighborhoods in St. Louis. And he described to me that neighborhood and just they had nothing. His family, he said, if it was raining outside, it was raining in my home. And if we didn't have something bolted, it was getting stolen without question. A lot of crime, violence, gangs and Duke and Coach Kate came to recruit me. And people from where I lived, they didn't go to Duke. So uh, a lot of people couldn't believe I was being recruited by them. So signing Chris Carowell. A little bit of a sea change there. All of a sudden, Duke and frankly, uh, the, the assistant coaches did talk about race. They thought maybe the program had gotten too white. Tim O'Toole told me on the record, we are preppies no more. That was our approach. We're not going to be preppies anymore. And so you look at Duke really getting away from a point where some of the assistants thought they were too white in a, in a, in a sport really largely dominated by African-American athletes. And they started recruiting kids from diverse backgrounds, 
And you look at that 99 team didn't look like necessarily a traditional Duke team. So uh, the recruiting approach definitely changed. And so I, I think that's Chris Carwell is a forgotten but important figure in the history of that program. So, but the 99 team, so one of the things is, it's funny you point that out about recruiting what was seen as non-traditional Duke guys. <clears throat> Jim Calhoun told me, I know he's, I mean, he's probably told you, he, he would say to this day, nobody in a city where it's Duke, people in the city wear UConn stuff. In the suburbs, you'll see Duke, Duke fans. You'll never see anything UConn except in the, in the Connecticut suburbs, which I thought, I thought was fascinating. And, and they, they, they lose that game. Um, and then the Jay Williams class comes in, right? And Dunleavy and <clears throat> they, lo- they lost in the Sweet 16. But then you could argue that that national championship team, in terms of talent, was a, I mean, you taught five NBA starters on, on your roster. That was an amazing, amazing group. For him to get back, not just to the Final Four in 99, but then to win it in 01, what, what was that like? Uh, that, that was everything to him. It's the first time after his, his physical and emotional breakdown that he wins it all. And, and really the 99 game devastated him. It just th- that team should have won the national title. They, they really gave one away there. UConn was a very, very good team, very well coached. So it wasn't like they lost to a, a subpar opponent. But that 99 team was just so damn good. The, the only loss they had going into that game. I think Cincinnati beat them in Alaska on a yes. on a last a second shot, right? So, yeah. Mel- Mel- so Melvin Levitt, Melvin Levitt, end of the game, uh, end of the game play, yeah. And I, be- I, I believe Duke hit a shot right after the buzzer that would have won it in that yeah. game, and it had to go the length of the, of the court in less than two seconds, I think, and they got a shot off right after the buzzer, and it went in. So. That team, so it really did hurt Coach K to lose that national championship game to Calhoun and UConn, but to come back and win it all. And he loves Shane Battier. Who wouldn't? Shane Battier at Duke was almost like Bill Bradley at Princeton. It was a perfect match. And so, you know, what they had there, Jay Will and and Battier, it was a little bit of like Derek Jeter and and Mariano, where it was it was Shane Battier's team. He was Jeter. And but Jay Will was the closer. He was Mariano. And so there was some tension between those two that year. Coach K noticed it, acknowledged it. I, I asked Shane Batty about that. He, he sort of downplayed it. But other teammates told me that it was an interesting, almost a Hurley Leitner, not quite as conspicuous as that, push and pull with those guys. And whose team is this? But ultimately, it was Shane Battier's team. But but they had great respect for each other's talents. And, and ultimately, it uh, worked in the end. You remember that. Boozer got hurt and Coach K in the regular season late, Coach K had to adjust. I think Casey Sanders is in the starting lineup and they they had to figure out how to win without him. Then he came back and then they had to figure out in the tournament, okay, how do we handle this re-entry? So there was a lot of coaching going on that year uh, and, and really one of the best jobs that Coach K did just to have to deal with the absence of Boozer and then the re-entry at a very delicate time. Um, so he recovers health-wise. He wins a national championship. Goes to the Final Four, then wins a national championship. You know, in the in in some people's minds, like when is it enough? Right? What, what, what is his relationship like, Mickey? What is 
his thoughts on how long he wants to do this. In, in that period of time, where was he mentally and emotionally? After the 01 championship? Yeah. yeah. I, I think, listen, 04 hurt him too. He loses again to UConn in the final four. Uh, I, I think he was engaged and and really had no thoughts about stepping away. And Mickey's always been not an associate head coach. She's really been the co-head coach there. She's involved in everything. In recent years, I think she's stepped away a little bit uh, from that. But remember now, the, the big thing is he, he gets the Team USA gig in 05. And there were a lot of people who thought this is going to hurt Coach K at Duke. He's going right. to be distracted and he, he can't you can't be the overlord of two programs as important as Duke and Team USA and have it not affect Duke. But as it turns out, so he goes and he has the disastrous loss in 06 to Greece, the, a Greece team in the semifinals of the World Championships in Tokyo that ran one play, the, the, the pick and roll, and Coach K couldn't defend it. It, it was frankly, it was embarrassing. And, and so that was a, that was well, you know. just, just so people, just so people understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and it, it's, it's hard to do it without, you know, like video. Right. But coach K had, and they, they, they ran into this problem at Duke really when they had Greg Paulus is that they, they defend and they still kind of do it where uh, it's a little different now, but his system really became once he got to 2000, offensively very simple right where it was he went away from the ninth passing game and it was a high ball screen and then defensively um defensively they just pressured you and then they would they would try and trap you out of ball screens and he tried to use that same philosophy in international competitions the problem is that it's a completely different game and how and the skill level of the european big man and the size and the, of the guards and the way in which they play and they're you and you, nobody double teams ball screens in Europe and that's the basic reason why and he had to right he had to completely rethink kind of defensive philosophy and how they played in international competition is that a, is that a, is that a fair way of portraying it yeah and I, I think that the shocking thing was once Greece had some success with with that one play Shashaski never adjusted. I mean, I, I think he, he did not. No, he, have wasn't an adjust, he wasn't an adjustment guy. No, he, he wasn't. wasn't. It's yeah. funny. Well, uh, Kenny Denard was a real character from his first team. He was a Bill Foster player and really didn't have much use for Shashaski. He used to say like, okay, we run this motion offense and we're playing man-to-man defense. How much coaching is really going on here? <laughs> I always got a kick out of that. He said, we have, we have a read and react to the defense offense and we're playing man. So what, what is coach K doing exactly? So I mean, it was half kidding, but he was only half kidding, but in that game, yeah, it was, uh, you go back and look at the tape and it was Greece was the Greece coach. He was stunned that he could continue to run this one play to perfection. And the U S was powerless to stop it. But Dwight Howard was a problem for coach K. He, yeah. he had Dwight Howard had, they had no use for each other. And so I think Chris Bosch was an important player in in Beijing in, in that Olympic run because he just uh, was willing to he was better defender against that play. And he was a player more willing to be coached by a college coach, by Coach K. And there was a better connection there. Dwight Howard, Krzyzewski yelled at him once. And Dwight Howard had a look on his face like, and this is uh, according to Shane Battier, who, who gave this to me on the record. 
that you can tell that Dwight Howard had never been scolded like this ever before. And he had a look on his face of just wasn't anger. It was just like, who the hell are you to be yelling at me like this as a college coach, particularly. So whatever he was, I, I believe it was about his lack of defense on the pick and roll play. He didn't perform it to any greater degree of effectiveness after being yelled at. It was his way of getting back at Coach K. And, and so that, same fuck, excuse me, same fuck you. Basically, and by, and yeah. by the way, well, what's, what's amazing about it is like that ultimately that's the downfall of Dwight Howard when he had his own team, right? Is ask anybody is Dwight Howard was not particularly coachable and was terrible defending the pick and roll and couldn't adjust as the, as the league kind of adjusted, he couldn't adjust. He never really developed a post game, but he was a bad pick and roll player. And that's all the NBA has become. Right. And that's why he went from being, you know, one of the most dominant statistical big men in the NBA to just a guy that was just a part of one, one, one championship team. It's really, you know, it's like coach K was actually trying to coach him out of something that would help him, but he didn't want to be helped. I think, I think coach K gave up on him and, and Chris Bosch really was turned out to be a godsend. And so, but yeah, there, there was a lot of tension there, LeBron and coach K too. And LeBron after the disaster in Athens where Larry Brown did not play him nearly enough. And I had a phone call from David Stern during those Olympic games and David Stern just shredded Larry Brown on this phone call for the way he was coaching that team in the middle of the Olympics. I was in gymnastics, I think at the time. And he said, uh, LeBron James is already the best player in the world. He's playing like 10 minutes a game. What the hell is going on? And what LeBron held was LeBron then 20. Was he 19, 20 in 2004? So uh, anyway, so so now Coach K takes over. Popovich is is really pissed off that he didn't get the gig. And Popovich loses it in part because he was he was on that staff in in Athens in 2004 with Larry Brown. So anybody was anybody was a part of it. They wanted they wanted him gone. It was so and 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 if I remember. Oh, two was a mess too, right? George Carl. Yeah, it was a mess too. And it was a mess, not just because of, but how the guys handled themselves and they were seen as arrogant. And yeah, USA basketball was a mess. Oh, it was a mess. Yeah. And Jerry Colangelo made the choice and it was down to Popovich and, and Coach K. Believe it or not, in the meeting, in the, when they were discussing options and what he did was Jerry Colangelo invited all the top names in, in, in the world of basketball to a meeting in Chicago, Michael Jordan, Chris Mullen. I, he invited everybody. I think John Thompson, Pat Riley, Larry Bird, and not everybody could make it, but a lot of them did. Jerry West was there and they discussed players and coaches and, and he put some names on a board and they talked about uh, those candidates openly. And Dean Smith of all people, said there's only one college coach you have on that board who can get this thing done. And that's coach K. And I think Michael Jordan, a North Carolina guy, of course, he backed it up. So coach K gets the nod over Popovich. And then he has this disastrous loss with LeBron in 06 in Tokyo in the world championship. So now LeBron James is wondering, should I trust this guy going forward? And coach K had to do a lot of work in that relationship, a lot of work, Doug. And I have a scene in the book before Beijing, LeBron's in a meeting. And before the meeting started, Coach K had asked his leaders, LeBron, Kobe, D. Wade and and Jason Kidd to say something. I need you guys to say something in this meeting. This is a big meeting. It's going to set the tone for the whole thing. 
And the other guy said something, spoke up. LeBron didn't. So the meeting's going 45 minutes long. And I have a couple people in the room sort of detailing the tension that's growing in the room because LeBron hasn't said a word. And Coach K is clearly extending the meeting just so LeBron would finally speak. He later that night at dinner told people, I thought that MF was not going to say anything and I would have been so pissed off. So finally, it was like somebody described it to me who was sitting there. There was a power struggle going on. You could feel it. Should LeBron James basically endorse Coach K? Should he give him his trust? Should he buy in and talk in this meeting after promising him he would? Or should he hold back and screw him? So finally, at the end, LeBron speaks up. He was very eloquent. He talks about, you know, we have no excuses. How many times as NBA players have we said, I, I wish Jason Kidd was on my team. I wish, I won't say Dwight Howard. He might have said Dwight Howard's name, by the way. But I, I wish I had Kobe Bryant as my teammate. I wish I had this guy, that guy. Well, they're all in this room. So we have no excuses. We have to win the gold medal and said a few more things. And then he stopped and coach K looked around the room and he said, amen, brother. And that was the end of the meeting. So uh, that was, that was a moment that they had. And, and there was, there was a time when coach K got on him about when I'm talking to you, I need your eyes. We need to have eye contact. You can't turn away from me. The players see that that's bad. Another moment they're on a bus going to a shoot around I think this is pretty early in, in the Beijing games. And LeBron is openly complaining about the necessity of this shoot around on the bus. And as soon as the bus rides over, Coach K pulled him aside and say, we can't have that. <laughs> you have to trust me that I'm not going to do anything that's go going to hurt our chances to win the gold medal. I need that trust. So you had this going back and forth. And Doug, uh, one last thing on that point. There's a scene in the in the in the book. After their last or during their last uh, prelim game in Shanghai, it was against Australia. And Kobe had started taking some Lakers shots, some non-team centric shots and players started grumbling about it. So in the Australia game, I went back and watched the tape. There are not many. There's only like two that you're like, yeah, you shouldn't have. That, that was a, a bullshit shot. And so LeBron, at some point in the game, walks by Coach K and he says, Yo, coach, you better fix that mother. And so now Krzyzewski's thinking, now I have to confront Kobe Bryant. I do not want to do this. But he had no choice. LeBron is now holding him accountable. And so he has to hold Kobe accountable. The next day, <laughs> Coach K doesn't want to do it, but he goes up to Kobe and says, you got a minute? And I think they're about to head to Beijing. So he pulls him into a room and Coach K breaks out a laptop. And he says, I just want to show you some shots you've taken recently. And he had, I don't know, half a dozen shots. And he told them, these are bullshit shots. You, you can't take these shots. You could do this with the Lakers, but not when you have LeBron as your teammate and Carmelo and these, Jason Kidd. You, you just can't take these shots. And Kobe looked at him, and I'm paraphrasing because I don't have the book page in front of me. He said, okay, coach, you got it. I won't. And that was the end of it. And he didn't. And, and Kobe was great during that Olympic run. And he, he basically bailed them out against Spain. I'm not sure they win the gold medal without Kobe Bryant and what he did. People, people forget how close that Spain game was, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it got tense. It's, 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 it's people, it's, it's really interesting how stories are told and that that was a very, very tense game. Um, and yeah, Kobe made some shots and they didn't, and honestly, like it, it's not, it wasn't a thing of beauty in terms of actual offensive coaching, 
it, Spain was probably better coached offensively and ran a better system, but just sheer force of kind of will of collective defensive intensity and enough Kobe Bryant shot making, which I, I don't know how you feel having now researched it and written this, written this book, but I can tell you from a basketball perspective, that's how coach K is thought of as a basketball coach. Now is he gets his kids or team to play harder than anybody else could get that group to play. And then he gives you a little bit more freedom offensively because you're playing. Uh, I can live with some of those shots. If you'd give me everything you have on defense <laughs> and within reason. Right? right. And that's, that's how they won that game. Right. And just look at the way coach Bobby Hurley gave him so much offensive freedom at the point. And he wanted that freedom from Bob Knight and army and never got, it. I'm not saying Mike was nearly the player, Bobby Hurley was, but he got no freedom from night to shoot. And, and he did, he did tell Bobby, listen, I'm giving you the green light to be creative offensively. As long as you play defense, uh, you have that freedom. I will give that to you. And, you know, it's interesting, Doug, in talking to a lot of coaches who competed against Mike and Pete Gillen's on record in the book saying this, and some said it anonymously, that when you look at him offensively, you're just never saying I need that play for, for my program. Right. I need that offensive set. So his weakness is the offensive side of the ball and getting his best player a shot in a big moment in a big game. So some coaches talked about the elite eight loss to Michigan state with the Zion RJ Barrett team, a little too much RJ at the end of that game and not enough Zion getting, getting him the ball in position to make a big play. And, and it's funny because here's the guy who drew up probably the greatest play in the history of the sport at the end of the game, right? To Leitner in 92. And yet his weakness is he, he really isn't good at that. And his, his strengths are so profoundly good. And in terms of motivating players, and he's a Vince Lombardi like motivator that it just covers the, the weakness and it makes it almost irrelevant. Um, how close did he come to taking the Lakers job? I think he came pretty close. Kobe wanted him to take it. If Kobe played college basketball, he was going to play at Duke for, for Coach K. And so it was appealing. I think at the end of the day, he ended up getting the best of both worlds. He stayed at Duke and where you have more control over winning because when you win a national title or championship, you don't get penalized like you do in the NBA where you pick last. In college, you pick first. The, the high school Americans want to play for the national championship program. So I think he realized it, staying at Duke it gave him a better chance to win titles. But then he, then he got to coach the best NBA players in the world at the Olympics. So he ended up getting uh, his cake. Got and, that fix. Yeah. 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 Got, I got, got that, got that fix. That's, uh, that, that's, that's fascinating. Um, can I, can I make a quick okay. point about how, how that 08 changed him at, at, at Duke? Okay. okay. So he comes back from Beijing, he wins and, and listen, it was dicey at the end of that. I, I it's interesting that he coached 42 years at Duke and yet, his most devastating defeat was not as a Duke coach. It was as the team USA coach against Greece in the world semis in 06, by far the most devastating defeat he ever had. And the most pressure he ever felt in a game was not at Duke. It was against Spain in, in 08 in the gold medal final at the end of that game. But what happened was after coaching LeBron and Kobe and, and others, he, he comes back and, and that he said, that, that's what I want to do when I'm at Duke, the rest of my time here, I want to coach the best players. So he embraces the one and done era of college basketball, which is something those of us sitting there in 92 never thought he would do. And he goes after John wall. He loses him to Kentucky. He gets Kyrie Irving. 
Austin Rivers, people forget, he was considered a slam dunk, one and done player coming out of high school, even more so than Kyrie Irving, believe it or not. They get him, they get Jabari Parker, and then they win a national title in 15 with a one and done team. So the Olympics really impacted the way he coached that Duke program going forward. I will tell you, though, the 2010 national championship to me is his greatest accomplishment. And, 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 and the reason is he changed midstream, right? It was towards the middle to end of the ACC where he started using Brian Zubek and they changed how they played defensively and they pressured far less. And uh, they were the best rebounding team in the country and they would get offensive rebounds and kick it out and shoot threes. So he, he did show coaching versatility in 2010, which is remarkable, which brings us to his point guard was John Shire, right? Um, I do think that how he decided upon John Shire becoming the head coach is interesting. Obviously, everybody's read the excerpts where he had a conversation with, uh, with, with Tommy Amaker. Why would Amaker be was Amaker the second choice? I mean, there's so many other choices. Bray may be a little bit too old, plus he didn't play at Duke. Wojo just lost his job, right? Because right. a lot of people thought Wojo, Chris Collins, kind of the shine was a little bit off the start, Northwestern. But what, why was Amaker in the pecking order? Was it Shire 1, Amaker 2? Or was it Shire 1 and then everybody else was what was 2? That's the problem, Doug. It, the university's pecking order was Amaker 1, Shire 2. The Krzyzewski pecking order was Shire 1, Amaker 2. So Duke offered the job to Tommy Amaker. And Coach K effectively talked him out of taking it, explained that, hey, if you come aboard for a year as successor in waiting and you leave Harvard, it's it's it, first of all, I have to demote Nolan Smith back to director of basketball operations after I promoted him two months ago, whatever it was, after Nate James left to be the head coach at Austin P. So now I have to demote a guy I just promoted. And also there's going to be an awkward dynamic on the staff with you and Shire. I just don't think it would be good for Duke basketball for you to be the head coach. So now Amaker could have said to him, Doug, coach, I, I know you're my mentor. You raised me in the game. I'm sorry you feel that way, but I'm going to see you in a couple of weeks. We'll have dinner and I'll be the head coach at Duke. And you will talk about our differences. We'll work it out. He could have done that and taken the job, but he realized if I go there and Mike's going to keep his office, which he is on the sixth floor, he's going to be very present. It's going to be weird and it's going to be tense. And so do I really want to do that? I have a great life here at Harvard. My wife has a really good job and he could probably coach there for the rest of his life. And so he actually backed off and, and didn't push it and didn't take what? the job. He was offered the job though. Wow. Why not Johnny? It's a good question. I mean, you could certainly make a case for for Dawkins being the guy. Amaker, if you look at his career, he's been the head coach at three Division One programs: Seton Hall, Michigan, and and Harvard. He did a great job at Harvard, but they've they've slipped a little bit too. Now they're in fifth or sixth place in the Ivy League, and so he probably knew he didn't have a juggernaut coming back. You could make a case for for Dawkins. I think that Amaker. I think the Harvard thing probably helped his cause a little bit. I think Duke that matches up certainly with, with the academic profile that they want to project. And Dawkins, was a, Dawkins was a Stanford. I, you know, I just, I, I yeah. guess, I guess here's, here's, here's what I'm getting to. It's interesting. North Carolina, there wasn't really anybody in the pipeline. Right. And so Hubert is the world's greatest gentleman and a wonderful man, a wonderful coach. 
but there, it wasn't like there was a whole bunch of Carolina guys because one reason right. is so many Carolina, the best Carolina players have become great NBA players, right? So they, they don't, outside of Stackhouse, <laughs> they're not a lot into coaching. Whereas right. Duke, you have this long list of, from Bobby Hurley, you know, Bobby Hurley's a guy then, uh, who, at the, you know, before maybe this past year has seen a lot of success. Um, and then, you know, I mentioned Wojo, who had seen some success, although the timing didn't kind of lie. We mentioned Jeff Capel, who was a long time. Many people thought he was going to be the heir apparent. That's why he wasn't leaving. He hasn't been able to turn Pitt around. And by the way, he, if, if he just stayed at Duke, he would have been the guy. He would have been the guy. Yeah, he would have been the guy. So, 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 the, so the question is, what, how do all of those guys feel now? And how are they going to feel when this, now that they've read, or they probably already know that Tommy was, was the guy? How, what is the stat, state? Uh, they call it the brotherhood. What's the state of the brotherhood? I think the brotherhood was disappointed that that Coach K got involved to that extent and sort of knocked Amaker out of the box. I, I got that sense from a lot of guys. Now, listen, they all respect John Shire quite a bit. National championship player, a guy who would have had an NBA career without the eye injury. Right. And John's, hey, listen, out of the gate, he signed the number one recruiting class in America. So it's hard to argue with that. And Coach K was still there and involved. But still, John signed those those players. And I, I think there's, there's, there's disappointment. There's some feeling, frankly, among the, the former, uh, some former black players I spoke to that an African-American coach who had the offer didn't, didn't get the job. So there's that as well. Everyone respects John without question, but it, it's, it's, listen, it's a tough one for Amaker to swallow. And particularly now he's sitting there, he's, he's fifth or sixth in the Ivy league and he could have had the Duke job. And so I, I did feel there were people inside the brotherhood who were disappointed the way it played out. What will the next 10 years of coach K be like, you know, they, they are, they're so Bob Knight tried to do TV. And then now I know he has dementia and he went fishing and so many of these relationships have never been healed. Uh, Coach K is very, very different from his mentor. Obviously, as you point out in the book, their lack of relationship now. What, what, will, the, what, will, what will Coach K post head coach at Duke be like? It's a very good question, Doug. And he, he doesn't play golf like Roy Williams does. He, I don't think he can play tennis much anymore. He used to do that physically. I'm not sure he's, he's able to do that as much or at all anymore. He, he, he's not a big reader, so I'm not sure he'd ever read my book. He says he will, but he doesn't really read uh, a, a tremendous amount. He does some gardening around his house, and so he'll, he'll do that. But I think he's going to be pretty involved in the basketball program. I really do. I think he's going to be visible. I think his influence will be felt, particularly, and this is a big reason why he wanted Shire in there, 33, 34-year-old guy who's never coached anywhere else, raised and molded and created by coach K coach K pushed him through and got him the job. So John effectively owes him everything. And so I think Krzyzewski will exert his influence over that program in the next, at least five years. I don't know about 10. He's keeping his office. I think he'll show up and practice here or there. He'll be at games and that'll be interesting to watch. I think early on, John will certainly be deferential and, but how's John going to feel about that in three years and four years? I, I don't know. And, and if you were the CEO of a company, I'm sorry, if you were, 
Yeah, if you just took over a company and the previous CEO stuck around on the board or as an advisor consult, would you like that? I, I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't. I, I would want that person to to leave. And I'm not saying that John Shire deep down feels that way, but it'll be interesting to watch how that relationship plays out over the next uh, three to four years. One thing that will surprise you about Mike Krzyzewski when you read the book. Well, uh, the first thing I was when I sat behind him for the first time in 99 in the NCAA tournament in New Jersey, when he played Steve Alford and that Southwest Missouri state team in the Sweet 16, he is by far the most profane coach I've ever. And listen, I curse a lot. I didn't care. I thought it was entertaining. I could not right. believe what I heard for two and a half hours. And so everyone who's had that experience for the first time to sit near him, they, they say the same thing. No, I know that's not really the context of the question you asked. No, no, no. no. That, 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 honestly, that actually is. That's I, I don't. I, I here's we, the, the sainthood. A lot of people have been bothered by that for years that that, you know, Nick Vitale's made him out to be a saint and he may be a saint. He just has the mouth of a sailor. Right. And I think it's helped out by how ESPN has portrayed him. But also, I also think one of the things that helps him is that the cameras at Duke, one of the ceiling cam and two, they're behind him. So you can't see. What, he, he can't see what he's saying all the time. That's right? that's a very so, good point. Yeah, good point. Know, like it, it's a it's a huge part of of how he how he's displayed. Yes, you see the fiery temper, but if he's he's not as demonstrative because of the camera placement at Cameron Indoor, and that that's that's seemingly every big game. I'll give you, I'll give you one other thing, and and you're right. It, it, in talking to a lot of players, and I asked them, Duke has the image at least the perception of being that last shining city on a corrupt hill in major college sports. Right. So how much does coach K really care about that and his image and the program's image and to a man, they said not even close to just winning. He just wants to win. Yeah. He cares about that. But, and I thought it was going to be like a 50, 50 split. They said deep down, that is not nearly as important to him as just finding a way to win that day. And in talking to some coaches who have been around him a long time in the Duke program, they said the guy wakes up in a stance. He his goal every day, if he's dealing with Doug Gottlieb or Ian O'Connor or his players or his assistants or somebody in the administration or somebody or the other coach, he just wants to beat you, whoever that person is. He wants to finish that day ahead of you. That is his goal. That's his everything. So, yeah, it's nice to have that image. How much of it is reality? I explore in the book, certainly. But he does not care about that nearly as much as he cares about just beating you. So you have the Carlos Boozer's family moving from Alaska to Durham. Is there the and, and then the, the questions about Zion Williamson, which which will always persist. All those things are addressed in the book. And I talked to the compliance director, Chris Kennedy. Duke was good enough to supply him to me. And I, I threw Lance Thomas in the jewelry and Corey Maggetti ineligible that 99 team. He played in all 37 victories that team had. And there are a lot of coaches who believe, well, how did coach K not lose those 37 wins? Well, the NCAA's decision was, well, Duke had no reason to know this happened. Now he didn't take that much money. It was $2,000 and who cares. Right. But it was against the rules. So he was ineligible to play those 37 victories. And, other programs have lost victories. And I asked Jim Beheim, his best friend in coaching or 
close to his best friend in coaching. I said, you lost victories over things like that. He said he hemmed and hawed. He didn't really know what to say because he's he's on the record talking about his good friend. But he said, yeah, the NCAA, they could be it's a subjective thing. Should you have known? Should you not have known? But uh, one rival coach, an ACC coach who competed against Krzyzewski a lot, told me that whenever something like that pops up, the Lance Thomas thing, the McGetty thing, a couple of other cases, you think to yourself, well, there has to be a very thorough NCAA investigation of this thing. And then somehow, some way, somebody finds a sinkhole and flushes it. And if that were my campus, my school, there'd be a five-year show cause at the end of it. So there is that feeling without question. I asked Duke about it. Do you defend this uh, perception among rival schools that the NCA is always going to give you the benefit of the doubt? It doesn't give other schools because it doesn't want to investigate Duke. It, it, it likes having a Duke. Sure. So it serves their purposes. Fabulous. Well, listen, you've been so gracious with your time. I cannot wait to read the book in its entirety. And I'm, I also, I'm not a, not, not a vivacious reader. I'm, I'm not. But, um, I'll tell <laughs> you a quick story. You're busy doing other things. We, well, no, I'll tell you a quick story before we go. 1994, July of 1994, um, I'm being, was first July of 1993, I play at the ABC, at ABCD camp, and I'm, I'm going to be a junior, and Coach K pulls my dad aside and says, you know, Bob, Look, I'd probably recruit your son if he gets it gets a little bit better. But you see that kid over there, and it was Steve Wojciechowski. He was a year ahead of me, and he was playing with he played on it with a team of bunch of foreigners. And everybody else played with guys from their area. Wojo played with with a team that was like two Americans. The rest were foreigners. Anyway, I got a I got I found a Polish point guard, so I I, I got no room for him. <laughs> but anyway, so fast forward a year and. I mean, I grew up, Bob Hurley, Bob Hurley was my idol as a kid. And uh, Jim Herrick offers me a scholarship at the Las Vegas Hilton on the phone. He's downstairs. I'm up in my room. And he says, uh, Dougie, you know you always want to be a Bruin. My sister was a cheerleader. We had season tickets. I was a ball boy as a kid with Walt Hazard. And I said, uh, actually, Coach Herrick, I always wanted to go to Duke. But they signed Wojo, so they got no spot. Like, the, 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 the prick in me. To say that to UCLA's head coach, like what the hell was wrong with me? But it was really how I felt. It was that was the power of that program at the time, especially for a white point guard. Like all you ever want to do was be Duke's point guard. That, that's right. it. that was that, 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 that was it. And, you know, you wanted to slap the floor with both of your hands in a defensive stance. Right. That was part of yes. it. Yes. And yeah. yeah and, so, and, yeah. And, 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 and people mocking them actually is was actually respectful. It showed like how how well known it was, right? That Duke Vitale, it, it became like this. This is college basketball is great, and because you either liked or hated Duke, that's it. You know, it's still to this day when they lose, it's like a national holiday. You know, I, it's like when the I, Dallas Cowboys lose. I remember you playing for Eddie Sutton at, at Oklahoma State, of course. But uh, who remind me who recruited you at Notre Dame? Was it McLeod or was Fran? It- yeah, yeah, McLeod, Fran McCaffrey. And okay. John McLeod. Yeah. 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 Okay. Ben McCaffrey and, and, and John McLeod. And so, yeah. And McLeod always struck me as a gentlemanly, uh, prof- professorial sort of coach. I uh, used to say this in, I said, I told my teammates, I bet he shakes hands with his wife before he goes to bed. Right? He was, <laughs> he, he was such a, like he, the, the little things that he concerned himself with, I were all like, 
he he would lose his mind if you didn't tuck your chair in when you left a meeting or you left a table. <laughs> Literally, he would stop everything. Everybody come back in. Whose chair is that? Notre Dame. We tuck our chairs in. Notre Dame. We sit in the front two rows. He was professorial. It was all about class and dignity. He never raised his voice. He tried to raise his voice once and he lost his voice for a week. Um, he was, he was, he was definitely a, he was a fascinating cat. Uh, fascinating, fascinating cat. He was, Terrific. he would have been a better coach. I think at a Harvard at a, he was good at Notre Dame. Just part of it also was they didn't let him take transfers. Um, I don't think he won. It was the same kind of the same time where you can't just recruit the suburbs. You got to get in, into some of the cities. And I, I don't think, I think he struggled with that a little bit. Um, he, but uh, me getting in trouble also hurt him there. But a, a big thing was they wouldn't let him take transfers. And when Notre Dame got in the Big East, people wanted to transfer in. And it, the, after he was fired, Doherty got to take transfers. He took Chris Humphreys and the rest is history. That, yeah, I, I, uh, uh, I would say Humphreys. Uh, he's on the staff now. I'm like, what am I thinking of? Um, uh, shoot, he transferred in from Oklahoma. God, why, how am I forgetting this? Anyway. Yeah, I, I remember sitting in a McLeod practice at Notre Dame. Lafonso Ellis was on that team. And so we're sitting there and I was with one other writer. It might have been Malcolm Moran at the time. And an official from Notre Dame comes running down the stairs towards us. And he says, guys, you're not going to believe this. And I am not kidding. But the word is that in 10 minutes, Magic Johnson is going to announce that he has the HIV virus. So he tells McLeod and, and McLeod is finishing the practice and players are moving around him at midcourt, sort of talking and just getting ready for him to sort of give his end of practice little talk. When you could tell the very moment he gave them that news, they froze. I mean, it was just I just I'll never forget that scene of those players freezing the very second he told them that Magic Johnson had HIV and was about to announce it. So I, re- I remember where I, I was. I was a high school freshman at Tustin High School. And John McLeod was my coach. I mean, um, uh, Tom McCluskey was my coach. He played for Dick Harder at, at Penn State. He was a hardcore coach. He just won. But anyway, <laughs> that was the thing with McLeod was it was so classy. And his it was just he'd get mad at you. And he'd have you, you'd get back to your dorm and the red light on your phone, like in a hotel would be blinking and you'd have to go and uh, meet with his secretary and the secretary or the secretary would call instead of a meeting, you'd go down, he'd offer you a water or a coffee or, or a Coke. And then you'd talk and with the door closed, he would get on to you. But with the door open or in, in team meeting, it was, he would only address you as Notre Dame. Notre Dame, we're immature. Notre Dame, we're not playing defense. You would never call anybody out. That was just his style. And I'm, I'm sure it was NBA based. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, uh, well, have, have, a, have an incredible day. Thank thanks you buddy. so much. Yeah. And I, I truly appreciate your time. Yeah. Yeah. Congrats on all your success, Doug. And thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. All right. We get back to the, the arena talk here at the end of uh, my discussion with, with Ian O'Connor. Here's the thing. Okay. So if you have him in a Duke, I found the campus to be beautiful. Um, I found some of it to be kind of North, North Carolina, excuse me, Notre Dame-like, where it's set aside from the rest of the city. I'm sure lots of private schools are that way. I know there's some private schools that are inside. You know, Marquette is inside Milwaukee. I know it's Raleigh-Durham, so it's not like, 
you know, Raleigh's a much bigger city than Durham, but it's not like it's in the city, but I found it to be beautiful. And when, when I was there, it was a week ago, Saturday, they're playing Florida State. The weather was nice. I walked around campus. All the buildings either had that same stone art, uh, exterior or they had some kind of glass modernization. I, you know, you walk in and like when you if, you, if it, there wasn't a sign that said Cameron Indoor Stadium, you wouldn't know it was Cameron Indoor Stadium. The football stadium, cool. It's kind of uh, set off below it. If you're walking up to that Cameron Indoor sign, it's below it to the right. Uh, just below where the Cameron Crazies camp in Shashevskyville. And, um, yeah, it's just kind of a regular random building. And you walk in and you're like, wow, this is Cameron Indoor. And it, it does. It has that small gym feel to it that's perfect. You know, no bo- no boxes. It's just, just hoop. It's it's tremendous. Now, they, of course, have a basketball facility, which is spectacular. And Krzyzewski's office is famously on the sixth floor but that that that's a gym and it's great and then they have a museum just off uh one of the off one of the baselines you walk in through to uh, the entryway and there's a museum with jerseys and paraphernalia from all the great players like they did a nice job of keeping it the way it traditionally was and then modernizing it you know in the gift shop modernizing it in the in the hall of fame and other than that it's, it's just a gym it's pretty pretty cool, and my thanks to the folks at Duke for showing me around, showing me the locker room, showing me an enjoyable time. It was cool. The, the one point I would point out, talking about Ian, and when you have John Shire as your coach, and and maybe it, it helps them that Mike Shashevsky will still be there. Is and look whether you think Duke gets calls or just gets a fair whistle on the road. The, the younger coaches one want to play faster, and two usually don't get any calls. I'm fascinated to see what happens to Duke over the next five years. As right now, they're recruiting well, and the crazies will show up. But five years from now, are they still recruiting that level? Are the crazies still showing up? Are they still as relevant a program? I don't answer. I don't know the answer to that. Of course, you're rooting for John Shire, but I don't. I, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what it looks like, and I think it is legitimate that Shashevsky wants somebody who has been with the program over the last decade. You know. Amaker did a, a heck of a job turning around Harvard. He, he was helped out by the fact that they knew how to game the in, in, uh, academic index, but they went and got better players than Harvard had ever gotten, and they, there was no funny business at all. It's fallen on some lean times here as others have adjusted their recruiting, and I think the Ivy League over the past five years, because of Harvard, has really stepped up its game in the quality of talent. During that time, Harvard's kind of leveled off. But that's not why he didn't get the job. He didn't get the job because I I, I think Krzyzewski wanted new, young, fresh. I think he would have given it to Capel. But Capel took Pitt, and it's a hard sale when, you know, he did well at VCU, but not as well as Shaka. He actually did really well at Oklahoma early on, but that fell apart. And it still hasn't hit yet at Pittsburgh. I think those are the reasons. Uh, well, listen, thank you so much for downloading, for subscribing, rating, and just listening and sharing with friends on Facebook or on Twitter and wherever you want to share this. A reminder, the Doug Gottlieb Show is daily, 3 to 6 Eastern, 12 through Pacific on Fox Sports Radio, foxsportsradio.com, the iHeartRadio app. I'm Doug Gottlieb, and this is All Ball.